0: This is a faithful saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Thanks for joining me today. This is Faithful Sayings broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Good to be with you again today, studying God's Word together. We're in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is where we left off, or where we're going to continue in our Roman series, going from chains of sin to chains of righteousness. So we are now entering into chapter 3, and I want to look at verses 21 through 23 to get us started, because I think that that really encapsulates the thesis of this chapter. Paul says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all those who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god in romans chapter 3 we find paul really rounding out his discussion from chapters 1 and 2 in which he is proving by scriptures that all men are under sin all men And women from all times and all dispensations has, as he says here in verse 23, fallen short, has sinned and fallen short of the grace of God, of the glory of God, rather. And his point is, is that all men need salvation. All men need forgiveness that is found in the grace of God through Jesus Christ there in verse 22. And that's going to lead into his next discussion about Abraham as an example of, of faith which we'll get to hopefully next week but now here he's driving home the point as I mentioned that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and but the beautiful truth is that all though they are separated from God have an opportunity to be reconciled to him have an opportunity to be forgiven have an opportunity to be justified or righteous uh, as Paul says here the righteousness of God has now been manifested. He's speaking of justification there, and that takes us back a couple of weeks ago to our initial study in which we uh, saw the root word for righteousness and justification is is the same. And in fact, in a lot of cases, the same word, it's just rendered differently depending on your English translation. So the righteousness of God, not his personal righteousness, even though it's true that God is himself righteous. Uh, Paul isn't saying that he is going to lay that personal righteousness on you and you wear it like as a cloak so that when he sees you, he sees his own righteousness. That's not that's not the biblical text or that's not what the Bible is saying. Rather, through Jesus Christ, we have an actual opportunity, a real opportunity to become righteous, to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ more and more as we. Commit to him and serve him, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, but coming back to our base text, to, to get the discussion started, I, w- I want you to imagine for a moment that you and a handful of family members are the heirs to a vast fortune. And your father has made his will known way ahead of time. So far in advance, you know it's coming. Uh, nobody can deny it. You know what to expect, and you wait for years and years with hopeful expectation uh, for this inheritance, for this fortune that's to be yours. and then finally the day comes, the day arrives and it's a time for you to claim your inheritance. All the conditions are met, whether it's your father's passed away or whatever the case may be, it the time has come to receive your inheritance, what has been promised to you and your family for a long, long time. But as it turns out you've you've missed something, you've misread, Your father's will. And as it turns out, all people will have the opportunity to share in your inheritance. And so in that scenario, do you think that you'd be left feeling a little disenfranchised? Right. Waiting after all this time with a certain expectation only to find out, well, it's not quite what you expected. Yes, you stand to inherit something, but so do a whole lot of other people. And that would be jarring. But that's what the Father's will said. You just missed it. And that that was the case for many of the Jewish nation who rejected the gospel of Christ simply because it offered salvation, it offered citizenship in heaven, and offered a great inheritance to all people, not just Jews, but it offered fellowship with God through Jesus Christ to all people and we can see this unfolding in a couple of different places we're going to look at one and that's in acts chapter 13 so if you want to turn with me in your bible to acts chapter 13 for just a moment just to see an example of this attitude playing out here where people rejected this great promise from god so remember paul as we read at the beginning of our time together that the law Um, bore witness to the gospel. It it anticipated what was coming, and the prophets also spoke of the Messiah and the salvation of God that was going to be offered through him. And so the Jews Jews were looking for this. They were expecting this and had every right to do so because they could see it clearly in their own Bible that this was coming. And they misconceived of it as a a physical material kingdom or inheritance. Uh, They thought Rome was just going to be wiped off the face of their land and they would be reestablished uh, and be a great kingdom like they were in the time of David and Solomon, uh, but that just wasn't God's plan. It, and it was going to be a great inheritance and a great kingdom, and and so many blessings were going to be offered. But they were going to be spiritual, and they are spiritual. Um, and but nevertheless, even when some of the Jews got that, okay, that it's a spiritual kingdom and that it's it's forgiveness um, of sins in in Jesus Christ and. It's it's abundant spiritual blessings Ephesians one three even though they got that, still when they saw that that was offered not just to them but to all people, that rubbed them the wrong way. They were so upset by that that they just refused to submit to the gospel. They re, they rejected their inheritance. And so Acts chapter thirteen, verses forty four through forty five. Here Paul uh, has been teaching. In this location, I don't remember exactly where it is. Uh, But if you back up in verse 42, it says, As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And so here you have this group of people who are listening to Paul and Barnabas preach. In the synagogue, and he's, we're talking about Jews, as the text says here, and they are—they're uh, thrilled by this message. Message, right? They want to hear it even more. They—they're begging. and Sanders says they're—they're they're begging that they could hear this message again uh, a week later on the next Sabbath. Uh, and so, verse forty-four says the next Sabbath comes around, and nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Right? They were ready to hear more about this gospel and more about Jesus and and the grace of God that comes through him. But it says in verse 45 when the Jews saw the crowds they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. So Paul and Barnabas were speaking out boldly, but now there's this totally different reaction from people. The very same people who a week previously were excited and thrilled, and were, and we're begging to hear the message again, what changed? Well, they see that now this message is for not just them. This forgiveness is not just for them, and this grace not just for them, but it's for all people. They see this in verse 45. They see the crowds, and they become jealous. They become jealous. Even though there's more than enough grace to go around, they didn't want to share that status in God with anybody else. And so this is the issue, which Paul is going to address, beginning in in Romans chapter three, that the Holy Spirit knew many of the Jews would respond to Christ and His gospel with hostility, not on not on principle, not necessarily on principle, but but because it offered salvation to other people, because it made them jealous. In Psalm one eighteen. Verses 22 and 23 say the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so even prophecy in, in, in the Psalms hundreds of years before Jesus ever came anticipated this response in, in the Jews. In many people, not just Jews, uh, but this is; those are the people specifically that that prophecy is speaking of. That they would reject this chief cornerstone who is Christ. They, and they would do this to their own detriment, as everybody does, whether you're Jew or Gentile to this day. You, you do that to your own detriment. You know, since sending Jesus to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world was God's plan from all eternity to save people from his wrath, there's no amount of law keeping that was going to justify somebody before God. And Paul anticipates his Jewish brethren asking, well, what then was the point of of all that law, right? So one of the um, quibbles, if you will, that would might be inspired by this jealousy that we read about in Acts chapter thirteen and this kind of miffed response that, well, you you know, we we were the Jews, we were given the law, and you know, we can even see our special status in in the old old covenant in the Old Testament, and that's true. It's all it's all there, right? That there was no nation like these people who had this law. Uh, who had the, this great, rich history, uh, who were God's covenant people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, through whom the Messiah would come. Uh, and Paul is going to address all of that, in, and not all of it, but he's going to speak to that in this chapter and in, in other chapters as well, and, and specifically chapters 9 and 10, uh, when he goes into proving that God has not rejected his people ultimately, but he's, he's fulfilled all of his promises, even in, in Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 3, he's he's anticipating some of these quibbles that would arise from maybe a Jew who was jealous or uh, was, you know, and in, in that jilted or felt jilted or jarred by uh, this salvation being offered to, to all people. So in Romans 3, in verse 1, Paul says, what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? And he says, great in every respect, verse 2, first of all. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. And what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Verse 4, May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so, first, anyone with objections to or criticism about God's faithfulness would be on the losing end of that argument Paul is saying. And he acknowledges that the Jews had have an advantage in in giving the law, and he says it's great in every every respect, but to come to the conclusion that God has somehow been unfaithful in now fulfilling his promise and sending his son, and that incorporates and that promise is extended or that grace is extended to all people, that that does not nullify God's uh, faithfulness, if Jews wanted to pout about it and throw a fit like they did in Acts chapter 13 and be disobedient to the word, Paul's saying that that doesn't change God's plan. That doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change specifically his faithfulness at all. And if Jews pouted that they had no advantages, they were just utterly wrong because they had received the commands of the living God in codified form. That's what Paul is saying. They had the oracles, that's what that word means and that was a blessing again which no other nation could claim Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 8 you know i mentioned a moment ago you could you can see that explicitly said in the old testament Deuteronomy 4 and verse 8 is is one of those places which essentially says you know what people is there like this great nation who has the commands of god and the answer was nobody else this you know the hebrews were god's special covenant people and number two, if any Jews proved, again, unfaithful to the Mosaic Covenant, and a lot of them did, that would not be God's fault. And, and if, they, if they proved unfaithful to the gospel and disobedient, that would not be God's fault. It would, it, again, it wasn't going to do anything to change or thwart his promises and his faithfulness to those promises. He will always be true, as Paul says, and every man is a liar. Even if every man is a liar, in verse four, and number three, if in their indignation they claim that their unfaithfulness only served to magnify God's righteousness, and in that thinking, believe actually believing that that exempted them from accountability, Paul says, "How will how will God judge judge the world?" That's what he begins in verse five. He says, "If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say?" Right. That's the second quibble. Right. Well, then. Well, if I am disobedient to the word, just as, you know, is charged here in verses 2 through 4, well, doesn't that just, and if that proves the faithfulness of God and magnifies his righteousness, um, wouldn't God, verse 5, then God who inflicts wrath, is he's unrighteous, is he? He's not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. And Paul says, may it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? And so this is this is another quibble, you know, quote-unquote reasoning in which uh, a Jew might try to justify sin in their lives or being disobedient to uh, the word of the gospel in the name of God's glory, right? Which Paul says that only leads to condemnation, right? Why not say, let us do evil that good may come as we are slanders reported as teaching their condemnation is just. And so a lot of Judaizing teachers would charge Paul uh, with saying basically, we need to do bad things so that we can receive the grace of God. Right? That's how they tried to sum up the gospel message. But Paul's going to address that very quickly in chapter six um, when we'll get there when the time comes. But the, the, he just touches on it briefly here, and he says that's nonsense, basically. And their condemnation is is just. That's no. That's not any legitimate rationale at all. God does hold people accountable. Uh, in other words, and he's not going to let sin go. There is just this new system by which he is um, going to forgive sin and and reconcile people to himself and make them holy and blameless. And this last point especially, I think, exposes the Westminster Confession and all of Reformed theology as patently false and and anti-biblical. Because they're, because in it, in, in other philosophies, religious philosophies that are similar to it, um, state that God basically ordained sin to come into the world that he might show his glory. And that's in the Westminster Confession, um, Article 6 or Chapter 6 in, in the first portion there. That God ordained sin, that means God wanted people to sin, or he made it so that people would sin, so that he could ultimately show how glorious he is. But Paul says, if that premise is true, if that's really the case, if that was God's intention, then how would God judge the world? Right? If he, if he intended for men to be unrighteous, to magnify his righteousness, then on what grounds could he hold men accountable for their actions? And that's the rhetorical question that he's asking there. And he says, how will God judge the world? And the answer is, it was he couldn't. That's Paul's point. Paul's point is that God couldn't or wouldn't have grounds to judge the world under such circumstances. And so that's the way he invalidates the Jews' complaint. If my unrighteousness only magnifies the righteousness of God, why does he find fault? And Paul is saying, that reasoning is just bogus. And he's exposing it as nonsense the Bible condemns all such shallow man-made philosophies that would try to justify sin, that would try to justify unrighteousness by saying well it only magnifies the glory of God so at any rate, Paul's, Paul's point is that whether you're Jew or you're Gentile none can be justified through law keeping all men who have ever lived need the mercy of God to be justified before him in judgment and justification can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ. Unless we underestimate the hopelessness of our sinful state, Paul it goes through now several passages from the Psalms and Isaiah to remind us that we are all guilty before God. Uh, so if you continue reading down through verse 9, uh, you know he says, What then are we better than they? Not, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. Uh, and so, Uh, Verse 9, the we, I believe, is Jews and the they is that of Gentiles, as the second part of the verse makes clear. So Paul is saying, though Jews have these uh, benefits and the oracles of God and their quibbles are just uh, ridiculous. um, Given all of that, um, are we any better? That means, are we in any better standing before God than the Gentiles? And in chapter 2, he's already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin and he's going to do so again here in verse 23 of this this chapter and then he he verses 11 through 18 are all these citations from the psalms uh, and isaiah in which he quotes there's there's none righteous there's no one who understands there's no one who seeks for God their mouth is full of curses and bitterness and their paths are ruin and misery and etc you can see all the the citations there and he he makes a whole lot of other statements too like quotes a lot of other scripture that exposes man's sinful condition before god uh, and that includes our thoughts our speech our actions they're, they're all there in this brief little uh, concise summary from from paul and he says that there's no fear of god before their eyes in this um, section also and therein lies the the fundamental failure of god's creation paul concludes in verse 18, that there's, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And that's, that's the fundamental failure of people. Whenever we sin, at, at whatever time we sin, and for however long we sin, it is because we did not or we do not fear and honor God in those moments or in those times. And thus all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's guilty, myself included. I have sinned, I need God's forgiveness. You have sinned, you need his mercy as well and forgiveness. And in the context, this is important. In the context, Paul is not denying, Paul is not denying that there are folks out there who are moral, that there's folks out there who show goodness in their own lives. Uh, you know, as he he mentions this in in chapter two and verse 14, he speaks of Gentiles who instinctively do the things of of the law. Uh, in other words, they're sensitive to their own conscience. It may be misinformed a little bit, but ultimately, in their actions, when they were moral and, and good, they overlapped their their lives conform to the law uh, that God gave to the Hebrews, even if they didn't know it. But his point is, his point is, even though that there's good moral folks out there, both Jew and and Gentile, his point is is that there is no one is moral enough or good enough and has lived their life in such a way so as to earn salvation, so as to merit justification before God. No one has lived such a good and moral life so as to be righteous before God. That can only come through the gift of grace that God extends to all men. Romans three twenty one and 22. Paul says, now, apart from the law, and this is the text that we read a moment ago at the beginning of our lesson, that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's no distinction. It's for a Jew and for Gentile, in other words. Everybody is accountable to God. He not only desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But he, but he's also provided the very means by which we can be saved. He's provided the sacrifice of his beloved son. In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter says that God is not slow, as some men count slowness, and that is slow in fulfilling his promises, but he's patient not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance that's what he wants he he doesn't he doesn't find satisfaction or pleasure in people being punished or people living in sin and ultimately going to hell for eternity he he doesn't enjoy that he's not vindictive he does take vengeance but he's not vengeful and he's not vindictive and he doesn't take pleasure in that no, he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, but he's never and has never forced anybody to obey him. He's never forced anyone to receive his gift of grace, and that also is contrary to reform theology. but it's biblical, as we see in Romans chapter one. Many people have turned their back on God and forsaken him, and he will give them over to the desire of their hearts. And so Paul calls the sacrifice of Jesus here in verse 25 a propitiation. And your Bible might say Jesus is a mercy seat or expiation or propitiatory, a sacrifice, depending on, again, your your translation. But the point is is that Jesus' sacrifice is the very thing which removes God's wrath from those who have faith in that sacrifice, who believe Jesus is who he says he is, and that what he did on the cross and shedding his blood— is more than sufficient to cleanse and justify them before God. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. If you want to turn there with me for just a moment. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. Verse 9, let's begin there. They themselves report to us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God. From idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus uh, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so Paul writing to Christians in this locale in Thessalonica is going back to their history and how they obeyed the gospel and were reconciled to God. And I want to seize upon verse ten because it shows again what Jesus rescues us from, why we need his blood and sacrifice. He rescues us from the wrath to come. That's the critical thing to understand, that here it is only those who believe in Christ, who submit to his gospel, who can receive the gift of God's grace, find forgiveness, and ultimately be removed from his wrath, be saved, I should say, from his wrath in the day of judgment. So in offering his son, God is both just and the justifier of those who obey him. That's what Paul says in verse 26 of Romans chapter 3, if you flip back over there, as we're closing down here, he says, For the demonstration I say, uh, he offered, uh, remember, Jesus as a propitiation, as a sacrifice to demonstrate his righteousness. And Paul says, For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, God cannot sin. It's against his very nature, and he, and he cannot be reconciled to, to sin. First John 1, 5, And in, in him is no darkness at all or shifting of shadow. He is all light and perfectly good and holy. And so it is also in the nature of God to love sinners and to seek reconciliation with them, even though he cannot be or ever have fellowship with with sin he cannot sin and he cannot ever have fellowship with sin but he desires reconciliation with people who do he wants to have a relationship with people who do thus he has to forgive them there has to be something there he has to provide the means uh, to remove that sin we were we were powerless to cleanse our souls from sin and nobody but god could resolve the problem and yet he couldn't pardon us without atonement, without that propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus, His only Son. Pardon without atonement would not have been just or right for a God in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning. So we see that He is just in offering His Son, and He is also the justifier of those who believe in His Son. Only God himself could be faithful to both aspects of his being. That is, that he is both just and merciful. And again, he did so by sending Christ to the cross. Thus becoming the justifier of those who would submit to him in faith. Hebrews five nine says that Jesus is the source of salvation to all those who obey him. That is power and wisdom and love beyond what I can fully understand. God gave so much and offers so much to us when we deserved nothing as his enemies. And so often with every fiber of our moral being people want to try and earn God's favor. And from a human perspective I suppose that that, that sounds reasonable and it sounds noble, but just look at Romans chapter 3 and that's impossible. Among other places we'll see that it's just impossible. And if it were possible, then we would have grounds for boasting, but clearly we do not. As Paul says in verse 27, where then is boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The fact is that God neither needs nor desires our help in doing what could we could never accomplish. But we have to humbly submit to him. We have to humbly accept his plan and his sacrifice as a gift and throw ourselves at his feet. We go into the waters of baptism, trusting that he will move, remove the old man as he has promised. Remove and cut away our body of sin and do away with it. Have you appealed to him for that cleansing in the waters of baptism? 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.